Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 40 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. Today, I speak with Daniel Spreadbury, who is the product marketing manager for Steinberg's new scoring program called Dorico. Over the past four years, Daniel and his team at Steinberg have set out to develop a new gold standard for music scoring applications. We discuss the product at length as far as its features, the philosophy behind it, pricing and upgrade eligibility, and the story behind its interesting name. The giveaway for this episode is three copies of QBasis, which is Steinberg's iPad-based music production app. If you'd like the chance to win this and other items mentioned on the podcast, be sure to go to clarineat.com and enter your email address in our email subscription box. This will give you access to free content updates, special offers and coupons, and more. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to today's episode. If you have any listener feedback or requests or any sort of comments like that, please do not hesitate to contact me directly. And you can do this at feedback at Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Daddario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Diderio is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Diderio Woodwinds, visit diderio.com woodwinds. I'm here today with Daniel Spreadbury. Welcome to the Clarity Podcast, Daniel. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. So I'm so happy to get a chance to talk to you today. You're actually the product marketing manager for Steinberg's exciting new music scoring program called Dorico. Now, I know that many of our listeners will probably know you from your past work with with Sibelius. Um, But for those of us who are not as familiar, um, you're one of few non-clarinet players to come on the show. Would you mind giving a quick rundown about what your your, um, job role entails there and maybe what an average day looks like at the office if there is one? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Actually, the nice thing about my job is that there is no such thing as an average day, really. That's more and um, more I'm finding with people. There's there's less and less yeah. sort of, you know, I do X. <laughs> yeah, quite. I mean, I do I do X and I do Y and I do Z, <laughs> you know, so it's it's good. Yeah. So, I mean, my my role really um, and Steinbeck has a kind of interesting approach to product management. I've been in product management for a long time. Like you say, I was I was working on Sibelius for many years before I joined Steinberg, along with several of my colleagues um, who were sort of part of the original Sibelius development team. Um, and we all, as, as everybody knows by now, were lucky to find ourselves with a new home at Steinberg after we were sort of let go uh, by our previous employer. And the way that product management worked there was kind of fairly straightforward in that, you know, as the product manager, you are responsible for, uh, to some degree, the business performance of the product, but also um, the design, the customer requirements, uh, making sure that everything is ship shape and, and that the product is, is going to serve the market. And then also a lot of the logistics about getting it into the market and so on. And Steinberg splits things up in a slightly different way in that they have uh, product marketing and product planning as two kind of different halves, which include some marketing aspects, some product management aspects and some project management aspects. So um, so it's, an in, it's been an interesting transition for me to go from a sort of pure project management role into a more combined product management and marketing role. Although it's actually, you know, fit relatively easily for me because I was also involved back in the day in writing, you know, marketing stuff for Sibelius. So, um, and in terms of what an average day is like, well, as I say, there is, there is no such thing. But today, for example, so um, today's Monday and 
we are in the middle of working on our first update for Dorico, which came out about 10 days ago. And the first update is going to come out before the end of November. And so uh, I wasn't actually in the office on Friday. So quite a lot of what I was doing today was catching up with the team. Uh, so when I got in this morning, first thing I did was check the forum. So um, we try to be very active on the forum and to really respond as directly as we can to people who have already bought Dorico. And of course, some people are evaluating whether or not they want to buy Dorico. So we get both a, a mixture of support questions and pre-sales questions. And it's not just me on there. Some of my colleagues also uh, weigh in on the forum because uh, we have got a huge, huge amount of traffic on there. Uh, then I had a couple of conversations with uh, with two or three of the de developers who are working on particular feature areas or fixes for the for the first update. Um, I had a call with our head of marketing to catch up on where we're at with uh, with the product sales performance so far. Uh, we had a meeting about beta testing because we uh, we're going to be um, continuing to do beta testing, of course, after the initial release. Um, I have also been going through the backlog of what we're actually working on for the update and making sure that all of the developers have their backlog prioritized, um, which we do kind of collaboratively together to make sure that we've got everything as we say, sort of in, in the list that needs to be done. And there was probably a load of other stuff as well. And tomorrow will be completely different. Tomorrow, you know, I, I probably, uh, one thing I know I'm supposed to do is we, one of the little things we're hoping to add in the first update is a dialogue to allow the user to transpose by a particular interval and so on. So I have to kind of design based on the conversations that we've had with the developer who's working on that. I have to design the, the dialogue for that and make sure that everything is laid as it needs to be. And it is great, you know, because it means that my, my job is very varied and, I can, you know, work across a whole bunch of different disciplines, a lot of interfacing with the customer, a lot of interfacing with my colleagues in the team, a lot of interfacing with the rest of the business in Hamburg. And it's it's every day is an adventure, which sounds oh, like a terribly corny thing to say, but it, it really is. <laughs> well, that's quite a bit more involved in answer than I was expecting. Wow, that's, that's a very, <laughs> very busy day. <laughs> and uh, it's worth noting for the listeners that you're passionately involved on the forums. That's not just a little sort of side uh, side note there. I mean, there was a even a thread a couple of days ago, I noticed where they were begging you to go to sleep and get some rest. <laughs> yeah. There was a special well, thread I mean, that was like, Daniel, go to bed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is it is one of those things. I've always been the same, really. I think because when I very started at Sibelius a very long time ago, my first role was actually in tech support. And um, as you know, a lot of people who find their way into into working in software and so on often come in through through that route. Um, and yeah, right from the very beginning of my involvement with Sibelius, which is the best part of 20 years ago now, I, I always took it very seriously that if I knew the answer to a question and I could help unblock somebody, like I always imagined like it's midnight in London and I'm about to go to bed and somebody in say LA or something is just like in the middle of the afternoon, they've still got a day's work ahead of them. And if there's some way that I can unblock them so that they can keep working and they can get their job done, then I would like to do that. So it's always been a bit of an obsession of mine, I must say, probably not a healthy one, that I will check the forum, you know, certainly morning, noon and night. And, uh, and, and sometimes at night that ends up being very late. But I just, you know, I, it really matters to me that the people who use our products, the people who use the tools that we make, um, get the best experience they can. And if part of that is that they can get in touch with the people who make it and find an answer to their question, then I want to be able to do that for them. Well, I think that is extremely commendable. And, and that in itself actually is a compelling reason to be using the software that you're involved with simply for that kind of personality or person behind the product. It's, it's so important. Would you say that in music, it's especially important to have this type of um, software assistance. I just feel like so many musicians are so afraid of technology. 
Yeah, I think I think you're probably quite right. And certainly, um, I think, you know, things are it's a generational thing to some degree, I think that um, I mean, I remember certainly when when starting with tech support stuff on Sibelius, as I say, best part of 20 years ago, the um, the average sort of Sibelius user was very different than the than the average Dorico user is today, I would say. Um, and back then, of course, you were dealing a lot with with people who really hadn't got any other experience of technology. And for them, you know, particularly perhaps even before I joined Sibelius, when it was running on the Acorn computer, which uh, perhaps, you know, listeners of yours who are not um, familiar with UK computers of the 80s and 90s wouldn't really have even heard of the Acorn. But it was a it was a kind of computer that was very popular in education in the UK. Um, and the Finn twins who wrote Sibelius wrote it in assembler on these Acorn computers. And they, it ran very, very fast on the computers, considering, you know, that they were you know, sort of slower than PCs of the day, but actually in terms of what they could actually do, they were way faster. Um, and so people would buy these computers and use them almost like a toaster, you know, like an appliance. They didn't really know or care that it was a computer. <laughs> More important, they could turn it on, press a button, Sibelius would come up, they could play on their keyboard and they would get some sheet music out the other side of it. And I think that these days musicians are, on the whole, incredibly they have to be able to get across a huge range of, of, of activities in order to make their living as a musician. I think that it's it's probably more challenging than ever. Um, you know, obviously, if you're you can make a living in teaching, you can make a living um, in in performing. But not everybody is lucky enough to be able to make all of their living through either of those activities. And I'm sure that you and many of your listeners are doing not only teaching and performing and arranging and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I think that these days it's more important than ever that a musician is able to grasp some technology in order to actually make the most of their talents and the most of their abilities and to, you know, even if it's just to connect to other people rather than necessarily to make your living use of technology, you've got to be on top of it. Um, and I think that on the whole, musicians are are getting much more tech savvy. And I think that, well, I hope that anyway, and, and the places that I've seen, the institutions that I've seen, there's, there's more of a focus now on preparing musicians as they come out of the colleges and out of the conservatories and so on to be equipped for some of that stuff. And, and I hope that continues because I, I can't see it going back the other way. Well, you know, it's a perfect um, segue here. You mentioned a lot about musicians and you yourself are a musician. In fact, you've said in an interview with Garrett Hope on the Composer on Fire podcast um, that you actually consider yourself a musician first, even after all these years of working primarily in, um, in this software industry. I think that's fantastic and important. Um, how, how do you feel that helps you with your work at Dorico? Yeah, I mean, I think um, maybe not everybody who knows uh, my musicianship would agree <laughs> that I'm a musician first, but I still consider <laughs> myself a musician first, that's for sure. And, you know, I still sing regularly. Um, I still uh, direct two choirs at the moment. Um, and I do do arranging and what have you for my ensembles and so on. And, and I feel that that's really, really important, not only for me, um, you know, personally, and, and perhaps even like spiritually, really, to be able to keep my hand in musically, because it's always been such a huge part of my life. You know, my mother used to say that I was a, a singer before I could talk, you know. And <laughs> so for me, that's it's always been absolutely central. And and to find this kind of this job and this passion, really, that combines my my enjoyment and my love of music, if not my musical talent, because I'm not sure how how extensive that really is, but certainly my love of it and my and my 
also my passion uh, for technology and so on has really been amazing. And I think the thing that's really, you know, perhaps unique about the, the team, uh, not only the Dorico team within Steinberg, but actually Steinberg as a whole is that, you know, everybody I meet inside Steinberg, and of course, you know, now I've been there for four years, I know quite a lot of these people pretty well. There's a huge amount of passion for music among the people who work at Steinberg. And I think that, you know, we in the Dorico team are kind of a microcosm of that in that all of us are musical uh, one way or another. Many of us perhaps didn't study music at university like I did you know I, I was lucky enough to do a degree in music and so on but everybody has musical projects um, we have a couple of people who've done postgraduate work in in music in the team we have you know we have a real a real spread of, of musical knowledge and I think it's vital because I think that um, I mean to allude to something you said earlier on musical software is so specialized and particularly when you're then dealing with the world of music notation which is like an even more specialized niche inside the niche of music You've really got to have people who know their stuff um, working on that and people who, for whom there's a real interest and a real passion in the subject matter because it does require, you know, a huge amount of kind of nutting out hard problems. And um, to be able to put together a team, as we have done over the years, of people who have that musical background, who have the technical knowledge and the know-how to be able to uh, to code and to figure out clever ways of architecting software solutions. And then also people who can really work together as a team as well, because it's all very well having some genius guy. But if you can't communicate and collaborate, then, you know, that's sort of a hindrance as well. So I really feel like the, the dynamic we've got inside the team of, you know, people who are technical savvy, you know, very technical talented and experienced programmers, but also talented and experienced musicians is kind of a unique recipe that we have in our team. Yeah, I think it's so true. And, and I think that it really helps um, sort of from an approachability standpoint and relatability. And uh, it's like you said, all musicians these days are having some sort of use for notation programs, whether they're doing duets up for their students or communicating through, uh, you know, an entire orchestral score to a conductor or things like that. So... Um, one thing I wanted to get out of the way before we get started here was what's in a name? I mean, f applications like Finale and Sibelius, I think the, the musical connotation is directly clear. Um, but when I Googled Dorico, I found a bunch of Greek columns and things coming up. What, could you explain that a little bit? <laughs> Sure. So, I mean, I've told this story a few times, so I apologize if your listeners have heard it before, but all, <laughs> all Steinberg products already uh, always have a code name um, for their internal development. And so we were trying to come up with, with a code name. And, and here's something I probably haven't said before, but we're inside Steinberg, we're known as the S team, the scoring team or steam um, by Super. default. And yeah, well, I wish, <laughs> but no, perhaps not. Um, and so we didn't really want to call the thing Steam because uh, it seemed like a bit of a weird, bit of a weird name. So I set out um, while we were sort of still trying to figure out what the what the actual marketing name for the product would be, you know, its actual release name, to come up with a with a code name. And the cute little idea I had was that as each version of of what would eventually become Dorico would be worked on, we would kind of pick a figure from music publishing or music printing history, um, moving right from the beginning of of music printing history, which goes back really to the the beginning of the 16th century when Ottaviano de Petrucci started doing his double impression printing in Venice. Um, and so I wanted to, and, and Petrucci's been used, of course. Petrucci is a very famous name. It's the font that came with Finale and so on. So we couldn't use Petrucci. So I went looking around for other people who were contemporaries of Petrucci's. And I found this chap called um, Valerio Dorico, who was actually operating in Rome rather than in in Venice. And basically in, in the early part of the 16th century, so we're really here talking, you know, less than half a century after the after the printing press has been invented. Um, and now we're starting to get music being printed as well. 
And it was being done in London to an extent, in Paris to an extent, primarily in Venice, and then also a little bit in Rome. And there were some other little bits and bobs around other parts of Europe, but those were the main centers. Um, and so this chap, Dorico, he he appealed to me on a number of levels. Firstly, he he um, he was actually lasted quite a long time as as a sort of a printing shop. He and his brother Luigi had a shop that ran for several decades. He he was responsible for printing some of the first editions of Palestrina's works, which is you know, probably what he's remembered for these days. But he also um, actually straddled a big technological change. So apologies for going into such nerdy detail about music printing history, but I, oh, no, I find this, this very interesting. That's what this show is for. In fact, <laughs> oh, my good. first name was almost Clara Nerd, but it was taken. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so so Petrucci, as, as I say, he invented this double impression method where basically you, first you have to print the stave lines and then you put the paper through the printing press a second time and this time you put the notes on. And that's a very difficult method because, of course, it means even the most imp, you know tiniest imprecision in the registration of the paper the second time it goes through the press, the notes are going to be in the wrong place and then the music is wrong. You know, if you, if you offset, say, um, a drop cap or something, an illuminated letter in a manuscript that needs to be printed with a second ink in a normal textbook the worst that happens is that you get a little bit of offset and it's okay but of course you offset notes in music and it's completely impossible to work out what it was that you were supposed to actually sing or play so petrucci kind of mastered this technique um, but less than 20 years later so we're now talking towards the end of the second decade of the 16th century a couple of people independently one in paris one in london came up with a single impression method that basically meant that you had the the stave lines and the notes on individual bits of movable type and you would lay them out in much the same way that text typography was done at the time with cases full of type and you would lay them all out and so on. And so Dorico was interesting in that he straddled this technological divide. He started off doing double impression printing and was one of the few people who could actually nail that method other than Petrucci and then moved over to single impression printing um, after the sack of Rome. And, you know, here we start getting into my weird psyche and so on. But the sack of Rome obviously was this terrible event that happened also with the papacy and so on in, in about uh, 1517. And Dorico's, you know, would have lost his shop and everything else that he owned um, as part of that. Um, and then he and then he came back afterwards, you know, better than before and went on to have a long career. And, and in some weird way that kind of that appealed to me and, and resonated with me as as sort of a marker of the experience that we had had. Um, and so Dorico was the name we chose as the code name. And then we sat and thought me and, and Frank, our director of marketing, I probably came up with 120 names or something. Uh, wow. But in the end, uh, we, we just couldn't find anything that we liked uh, and we had by this stage been using Dorico as the code name for for six to nine months and I can't remember now whether it was me or Frank who suggested that maybe we should just use Dorico but um, it turned out that you know Dorico is relatively hard to misspell relatively hard to mispronounce there's really only two ways of pronouncing it and I'm very happy to hear the, that you haven't pronounced it the way that it's sometimes mispronounced as if it was some kind of corn chip or something um, Dorico. And it's, <laughs> indeed and it's not really used by much else there's not many other products or anything that use that use um, the word Dorico uh, there's kind of some bicycle seat posts and things but that's really it so we were able to trademark it um, which is obviously very important and it works reasonably well in all the different countries that we need to sell the product um, and of course, it does have some musical connotations too, because uh, Doric uh, also means kind of Dorian. Um, and of course, there's pieces like, for example, Respighi's Dorico Quartet as well. So it has got some, and you know, Do Re is a bit like Do Re Mi, the beginning of solmization as well. So, mm -hmm. so it just all together, it sort of it seemed to fit. 
but really the, the the truth behind it is that I quite like the name as a code name and because of the story behind what Valerio Dorico did in the first half of the 16th century it just kind of it sort of it sort of sat right with me and then it, it turned out that you know we think it also worked quite well for the product when it came to it in the end. Well, I think it's a fantastic story. How interesting. And it's interesting because Dorico itself is sort of moving ahead or setting its own new standard for scoring. In fact, your guys' uh, slogan has been that it's setting the new gold standard for notation programs. Um, if we take this concept a bit further, what does that mean to you? And now that the product is launched, do you feel that you've achieved that, that goal or idea? Well, I think we're taking a, <laughs> we're taking a little bit of flack. <laughs> for that um from some of our early adopters and i and i think you know that there's it, it's fair to some degree what do you what do you mean code, sorry can you elaborate on that or? well so you know so i think that what we mean when we say that dorico is the new gold standard is that it produces um a kind of output that is far beyond what other scoring programs do and i think that it i think it does deliver on that to be honest i think that in terms of the um, where we've spent a decent amount of our time obviously a lot of it has gone into kind of architecting the software so that it's a solid foundation for future development and making sure that it runs well on today's multi-core processors and preparing it for being able to be ported to other platforms and all these other things but where we've really focused our effort has been um, on because this is a program that is designed to produce music to be played by live musicians. Um, it, you know, if you're going to produce a printed musical score, it's because another human being is going to be on the other end of it rather than it being just something to produce sound inside the box. Um, and that's no criticism of, of programs that are designed to produce sound inside the box. Music production is, a, is an incredibly important activity. And, you know, and obviously Dorico can, in a sense, be used for some of those music production tasks. But really the reason that you want to use a program like Dorico is because you want to actually have your music played by another human being. And one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that um, in the history of music engraving, which, as we've just said, goes all the way back to the beginning of the 16th century, that's, you know, more than 500 years now, that's a continuum of an evolving tradition, an evolving set of conventions um, of what we call conventional Western music notation here in, in, in Europe and, and, of course, in the States, which is part of that European tradition. But um, and that tradition in that in the in the sort of in the continuum of that tradition the era of computer engraving which really in terms of the wide access and democratization of that creation process is really kind of 25 years or, or thereabouts you know since since finale um, came along at the end of the 80s and so in the in the scheme of things that's a tiny blip and i think that although computer engraving has been an incredible democratizer just as you know access to desktop publishing access to web publishing and all the rest of it has democratized content creation across all of the other arts whether it's the visual arts the literary arts and so on um, i think that unlike say the literary arts where the the medium is the message with music it's kind of this imperfect representation of the composer or the arranger's original intention and computer notation has been an especially imperfect rendition of that intention because it hasn't been able to take advantage of the um the sort of the traditions, the craft of music engraving and all of the thousands of little details that go into making a page of music feel feel and look balanced and proportioned and, and basically easier to read. And, and so what we've really focused on and why we say that Dorico is the gold standard is that we have really tried to identify all of those hundreds of little things, some little and some large, that, that a human engraver would do when preparing a piece of music. 
um, for somebody else to read and to try and get the program to to do as much of that as possible. And we're not saying at all that Dorico can or should replace an experienced human editor or engraver or music typesetter, whatever you want to call them. But what we want to do is mean that is that even if you don't have a great knowledge of all of these little details, you will see music produced by Dorico and it will just look more right. It will look more like the music that you grew up playing that was that was produced in the pre-computer age. And we have to be realistic. These days, 99 plus percent of music that is published or that we ever see put on the stand in front of us has been produced on the computer. And, you know, the vast majority of that will be with one of the two big programs, you know, Finale or Sibelius that have been around for the last decade or two. And although those programs are wonderful and I worked very hard on making Sibelius as as good as I could, along with my colleagues for many years. The simple truth is that, you know, they they are products of their their eras in which they were conceived. And some of the things that we've been able to think about addressing now wouldn't really have been realistic to to have tried to do in the late 80s or the 90s when computation wasn't as sophisticated, you know, when the technology wasn't there in fonts and all these other areas that we've been able to sort of sit on on top of the shoulders of these of these previous foundational technologies. And and so what Dorico then allows is to get closer to that tradition, to get closer to that craft and to produce a really beautiful output. And I think that that is where Dorico does deliver on on its on its claim to be the new gold standard. But I think that what we've what we've had from a few of our early customers is well, you say it's the new gold standard, but it doesn't do chord symbols or it doesn't do, you know, guitar tab or whatever. So how can it be the gold standard? It's not the gold standard for me. Uh, and I understand that and I and I have a lot of sympathy with that. Um, and obviously the plan is that we will continue to to develop Dorico as quickly as we can to add these features. But crucially we want to get to this gold standard with everything that we do. So that means that when we want to do chord symbols, when we want to do guitar tab, we want to do them to the point where they are of of a piece with the rest of what we've already achieved and finished to the same high quality with all of the assistive features and automatic details and so on that that would take you a lot of time in other programs. And, and unfortunately, the simple reality is that, you know, although we're we're very fortunate to have an excellent team, we are still quite a small team and all of these things take time. Well, let's dig into that for a second, because, I mean, one of the listener questions that came in, too, actually, was who exactly is Dorico marketed for? And this person who sent this question in had said that they sort of wished it would be both for the person who is a very skilled um uh, experienced computer user, but also more of like a, a, a beginner basic type user. Um, and nowadays, I mean, there's so many options, even in, in researching for this interview, I, I found several more options of notation programs I didn't even know existed. Um, mm-hmm. So compared to 10 years ago, I mean, we've got like Finale, there's Sibelius, ScoreCloud, MuseScore. I mean, there's this new thing called StaffPad, which I, you know, like I said, I'd never even heard of. Um, so who is the ideal customer? Who, who is this the gold standard for? And, and, Will it accommodate both uh, more professional users and sort of a more beginner audience? I think we've been fairly sort of unapologetic about targeting the pro user to begin with. I feel like, you know, as you've just said, there are a huge number of solutions for music notation these days, um, including some that are that are very inexpensive. You know, StaffPad is really quite a revolutionary bit of software, I think, running on the Windows Surface um, sort of tablets and pen-enabled Windows devices and actually allows you to handwrite your music directly onto the staff. That's really a pretty revolutionary thing. But the trade-off that you get with StaffPad is that 
it is really a compositional sketch pad and it's not really designed to be good for doing you know high-end engraving or you know art music that you would that you would print out and and want to publish it's for sketching something down and then you know it's notion notation output is is totally serviceable it looks really great particularly compared to you know um what was possible even a few years ago but it isn't perhaps up to the up to the highest standards of what you can achieve with the with the really high-end engraving programs but it doesn't need to be that the appeal of something like staff pad is that it's immediate and that you can work with it in a very different way that actually engages a different kind of creativity when you're using the software and i think it's amazing i think it's absolutely a, a wonderful thing and very different than what we've tried to do with dorico and at the same time you've got these other entry level programs you know you've got free ones like MuseScore, which is open source and which is for linux and for mac and for windows and is in every language under the sun and has got this very vibrant open source community around it um and and is a and is a wonderful thing and an amazing resource for educators and for you know kids who perhaps are not really able to justify spending money on on a professional tool and so on um and it chips away incrementally at, at the features that were previously the preserve of only the high-end scoring programs um and so i think the low end uh, if i can call it the low end without that sounding like a disparaging um way of describing it because it's not intended to be but more like the customer who has simpler needs and who maybe doesn't perhaps have the money or the inclination to go and spend a lot of money on scoring software those those bases are pretty well covered and so for us it made sense really to try and identify the places where the the user is not quite so well served and so that's why we we set out to to kind of reinvent the scoring software at the at the pro at the pro end just as i think both finale and sibelius did when they were first conceived they were both intended to to be those pro level tools and it just so happened that you know uh, particularly for the time they were they were around they were you know sort of revolutionary in terms of the fact that you know with finale you could now do sheet music including part extraction on a Mac SE2. And yes, okay, it used to take all night to print out a set of parts. And if you're unlucky, it would crash halfway through and you would have to start again and so on. <laughs> but still, compared to what was possible in the late 80s at the time, that was a revolution. Likewise, when you think about the mid 90s and Sibelius coming along, and now you've got this, you know, 60 frames a second display and everything updates instantly and you can play in real time and, you know, and all this stuff, that was revolutionary for its day as well. And of course, it's difficult these days in the second decade of the 21st century to do anything truly revolutionary. But the the idea was to take that high-end goal of serving the professional, whether it's a publisher, composer, educator, whatever, and to really give them a tool that takes advantage of all the modern technology that exists now and that sets a, a foundation for the next you know, 20 years. It's it's really the idea is that if software, if these kinds of packages are kind of generational, then then Finale and Sibelius are of the previous generation, and Dorico is now of the next generation, um, and and that was really what we what we had in mind. Now, having said that, I think that you know Dorico's particularly the fact that its user interface is very uncluttered and that, um, you know, we've tried to make the input very efficient and very logical. I actually think it's pretty easy to learn as well. Um, And of course, there's no reason why software that is intended for professional users shouldn't be easy to learn and easy to use as well. You know, professionals benefit just as much from having software that is logically laid out and and easy to remember and so on as a beginner does. So I think that Mm -hmm. what we will see over time is that, you know, yes, Dorico is targeted very much at the pro now, 
just as say Cubase Pro or, or WaveLab Pro is in, in the rest of Steinberg's product offering. But we've also, with our other professional products, released a couple of other sort of, I wouldn't call them cut down versions, but versions that are more targeted at users with, with more modest needs. So for example, with Cubase, there's both Cubase Artist and Cubase Elements. And in fact, there's also some, some further cut down versions of Cubase that are bundled with audio interfaces and with Yamaha gear and so on. But, you know, you can get onto the onto the Cubase um, sort of product line for kind of $100 or thereabouts with Cubase Elements. And that's still an extremely capable digital audio workstation, but kind of the gateway into, into one of our more advanced solutions. And I think over time, we've certainly got the opportunity to do that with Dorico as well. And, and, and that will then open up the product to, to that sort of perhaps that wider pool of people for whom, you know, they're very interested in the kind of things that Dorico can do. And they would still benefit from all of the clever, um, automatic, beautiful engraving things that it does and all the nice input that it has and so on. They just wouldn't have access to all of the very high end features that possibly they wouldn't need anyway. Yeah. And, you know, that was one of my, you sort of answered my next question, which was, is there a more sort of basic student um, version of Dorico coming out? And and based on what you first said, I kind of thought not, but then you said you are potentially considering it down the line. Is that kind of yeah, de- definitely down the line. Yes. I mean, I think what we, we, we want to be kind of fairly single minded in our focus right now. And we'd like to really establish Dorico's um, position as a professional tool and, and to cement this kind of this idea that it is the new gold standard. And I think we need to be quite dedicated to to meeting the needs of those customers right now. And, and of course, I would love it if people in education, if students and so on look at Dorico and they say, yes, this looks like the kind of program I, I would like to use. And, you know, Steinberg has all always offered very generous educational pricing on all of its products and Dorico is no exception in that regard. Um, so, you know, it's there. And if people would like to, to come and use it, whether they're in, I mean, particularly, I guess, if you're in tertiary education or if you're a teacher, then I think Dorico hopefully has a lot to say to you. If you're a student in tertiary education, a music major, a composition major, whatever it might be, then I think, again, Dorico has a lot to offer for you. Uh, if you're a, perhaps a high school student who's doing an elective um, music class, you know, maybe it would be overkill for you right now. Um, but certainly down the line, I think that there's, you know, it makes a lot of sense for us to, uh, to, to sort of build out the Dorico product line in the same way that we have done with our other products. But it is, it's a little way down the road because we want to be completely dedicated to making the first version of Dorico as professional tool as we can in the short term. Do you think there's any chance of Dorico heading towards devices like the iPad or the Microsoft Surface, or is that a domain you're going to leave to other other software manufacturers at this time? So, I mean, Dorico does actually work pretty well on the Surface. I mean, it doesn't have any uh, dedicated uh, pen features like that allow you to sort of handwrite the notes in. Yeah, like I guess that's what I meant. It's more, that. not so much as a format of like the device, but more the input method. I mean, even there's now the Apple Pencil or like a Wacom sure. tablet or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I have a huge amount of respect for what um, David and Matt at Staffpad have done uh, with what they've done. And also there's a, there's a few different solutions on iOS that allow you to handwrite your music in as well now. And I think that's a really impressive kind of bit of R&D because it's, it's a very, it's a much more sophisticated thing to achieve than say um, handwriting recognition where, you know, letter forms have a very consistent form. And although, you know, there are a few ways of writing, you know, a capital letter H in terms of what order you do the strokes and so on as a as a kind of a problem space at least with with our 
Western um, alphabet, it's it's really not too bad. You know, the Roman alphabet is obviously a, a lot easier to deal with than, say, Chinese or Japanese. And, and even that these days is, is a well-solved problem. But music notation is this weird two-dimensional language where, you know, you and I, we could sit down and we could each handwrite a quarter note or a crotchet, as we Brits would call it, and it would look completely <laughs> different. And the strokes that we would use, you know, you might, for example, do like a little diagonal line and just a stroke for the stem. And I might do like a little ball that I might, you know, scribble over and over until I get something that looks a bit, you know, like an actual round note head. And then, you know, I might do that slanting in one direction for this note and the other one for the next one. There's a lot of variation. And of course, the fact that it goes up and down and left and right, as I say, it's this two-dimensional jigsaw puzzle that the computer has to figure out. That's a really, that's a really tough problem to to get into. And as I say, I have enormous respect for, for the guys at Starfpad, the guys at Neurotron, the guys at MyScript, who've all come up with different approaches. To, to solving that problem, but all ones that work pretty well um, for their various programs. And I think that we we sort of see, at least for the time being, our expertise as lying elsewhere. But that's not to say that we don't want um, Dorico or, or products that use Dorico's technology to be available on Surface or on iPads or whatever. I think, you know, I think it certainly makes sense. And as I said earlier on, one of the things that we spent a lot of time doing when we were kind of designing the architecture for the application was making sure that the core logic was totally portable and could run on a variety of different operating systems. Um, and then, you know, what we would need to build would be the user interface bits, the score drawing, all these sorts of things, um, but making sure that that core logic can run in different places. So again, right now we have a fairly single-minded focus on making sure that the current version of the app for Windows and Mac is as good as we can make it. But I think in the future, we absolutely see Dorico as branching out into these other platforms in in interesting ways, whether it's viewing applications or companion sort of sketchpad applications or digital sheet music sort of stuff more generally it it, it all remains to be seen uh, but but i think it's it's certainly um an area that we're interested in well let's talk about the actual usability of dorico a little bit i mean you just mentioned there with staffpad one of the nice things about it is you can write directly on the screen and i think that one peop one reason that people um like that is that that's kind of how their musical ideas unfold and in past applications, I have found it very difficult because I almost feel like I have to go into a sort of page layout planning mode before I can start writing the music. And that's not really how it works to me. Like I, I find I have the ideas differently. And, and I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the, the Dorico sort of workflow method and, and how that's changed from other software programs. Yeah, I think I think that's a very insightful comment because I think that is one of the key things that we identified as well. Um, and I think, again, it's it's you have to think about what programs like Finale and Sibelius were originally intended to do. I think it's probably fair to say that neither of those programs was originally conceived as an environment for composition, but rather as a means of replacing the laborious task of taking a piece of music that's already been worked out and making a camera ready, you know, engraved version that you could then use for printing and publication. And it was only because, you know, just the general immediacy of having the computer as as, as a sort of an assistant and a, and a workstation um, that it became that those programs started to have to pull double duty as environments in which you could develop a musical idea and so on. And to some degree, I think that it's always been a slightly uncomfortable fit 
for the for those programs and so you know one of the great advantages that we had was being able to look at okay well how is scoring software really used today and you know part of it yes is, is of course for, for doing beautiful printing of, of stuff that you can publish stuff that you can put on the stand and you can record or you can play in the concert hall or whatever and part of it is for use in education and part of it as an audio production environment so that you can produce you know a rehearsal score or a mock-up to show to a director or a producer or whatever and part of it is as a composing or arranging environment. And so being able to kind of look across all of those use cases that the software has to address and say, okay, well, we know that a program like Dorico now has to be able to address all of these as comfortably as possible. How do we design the program in such a way that we that we enable this without the program kind of collapsing under the weight of everything it's got to do? And in particular with composition, we really wanted to free the user from thinking about page layout or indeed any any decisions really about the way that their music has to work. When you sit down at a sequencer or, or another kind of audio production tool, you you obviously can say it's going to be in G major, it's going to be in 3-4 and I need 72 bars, right, go. You can do that. But you also have the freedom to just press record and start playing on your keyboard or play your instrument into a microphone or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to try and start to give you some of that flexibility and freedom with Dorico. And of course, Dorico is in the end still always thinking in notation. It's always thinking in note values and so on. But it doesn't always think in a particular meter or in a particular key. Um, and I think that the the really kind of I mean, it's possibly a bit much to call it revolutionary, but the thing that really makes Dorico very different from other scoring programs is that you can use it as a compositional environment where you start. I mean, when you start a new score in in Dorico, a new project, you literally get one beat, just one quarter beat sitting in front of you. And it doesn't give you empty bars to fill in. It doesn't give you, you know, it doesn't force you when you're starting up to choose keys and choose time signatures and so on. It just literally says, here you go. Here's a here's a blank canvas. Do what you want, and so you can actually input notes, and you can com- completely ignore matters like time signature and key altogether. You could input everything as an eighth note if you wanted to, and then go back and change them all into all these different note values. Put bar lines in wherever you want them. Work out how the musical idea actually flows, and actually iterate on your musical idea and develop that musical idea inside the software in a way that I think hasn't really been possible before. I think a lot of people have done amazing things with using um, programs like Finale and Sibelius as a compositional environment. But I think that Dorico is the first one that really actually starts to give you the freedom and flexibility that that you actually feel when you sit down with a piece of blank staff paper at your instrument and a pencil and you start to say okay well I'll just rough in the pitches and now I'll put in the rhythms and then maybe I'll try this another way and how would this work if I you know transposed it like this and of course you still have the advantage that the computer allows you to copy and paste and make quick adjustments and so on but you have that inside a framework that is much more um, liberated um, in terms of freedom from meter, freedom from from particular sort of restrictions that the musical model that the application itself has um, than any of these other programs in the past. Well, I think you're really onto something there because, I mean, like I just said, I'm more familiar with Sibelius, so I'm going to use an example from that. But I would open up a document and the first thing it asked me to do is enter the key signature and a bunch of things that, honestly, they seem a bit premeditated and it's kind of like putting the cart before the horse. I mean, I just want to open it up and I'm having an idea. And before I know it, I'm so bogged down trying to get the document set up that it's gone. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that's really, that's really what we want to try to avoid, you know, and, and 
what we sort of try to say with Dorico is that all of those decisions can be made, but they can also be remade. And I think that's another big difference. You know, in, in Sibelius, if you if you put in a time signature beginning, like, you know, you, you say, well, I think it's in 3-4, and you start typing it in 3-4, and then you discover actually, oh, no, it's actually in 6-8. Of course, the way that 3-4 and 6-8 are set up being, you know, one simple, one compound, one got, you know, uh, three beats in a bar, one got two dotted beats in a bar, and so on, to then actually kind of go back and fix up the notation in such a way that what you originally thought of as three four now looks correct for six eight you may as well write it in again but the neat thing about dorico is that it it basically you can just say oh no this is actually six eight what was i thinking and it will actually rewrite the music re you know retying things where they need to across beat boundaries and all the rest of it and does that all the time automatically one of my colleagues says that it's a bit like having kind of a grammar checker for your music and i think i think that is really what it's like because as you as you write your rhythms and as you develop them as you you know make things longer and shorter you can insert music in the middle of an existing voice and everything else will shuffle along and the program doesn't kind of penalize you for changing your mind and i think that that really is a big change um, inside dorico that you you can really not only make that decision at any point but you can also change your mind at any point and it's as if you had never made that first decision in the first place and i think that's the first time that's been true is it possible to insert things like text and text boxes and title pages more freely and i mean even second movements than other applications i mean i heard i think you say that this this program sort of took some influence from adobe lightroom and indesign and i have to say that if that's true i would be very very happy with that yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the user interface paradigm is is you know a little shamelessly borrowed from Lightroom. Actually, um, quite a few of us in the team, as well as being uh, musicians, of course, like all of us, you know, we're all family people and so on. We all take photos of our kids and goodness knows what else. Um, and so, Lightroom is a product that that many of us in the team have used over over several years to you know manage all our photos and so on. And the neat thing about Lightroom is that in in many ways it's got the same sort of document centric approach that a program like Dorica needs to have. And also because Lightroom was designed from the beginning to be usable by a photographer in a studio who doesn't have his big rig, but he needs to quickly see what he's getting off his camera, manage the role of, of you know, of, of effectively digital negatives that he's got, do some initial editing and so on and do that all inside a single window. That was really a, a key inspiration for us in putting Dorico's user interface together because, you know, we more and more people are preferring to use laptops um, than they are big desktop systems in their in their studios and so what we wanted to do was to again to make a, a, a program that would actually scale up from the laptop into the studio and i think we've done that quite well and a lot of that comes down to borrowing this kind of dockable panels that are all on the sides of the windows leaving as much of the middle area of the window you know in lightroom that's for your photos obviously but in, in dorico that's for your music um, and i think indesign was also a big inspiration because one of the things that that people working in publishing certainly and, and to an extent in education when you're doing exam papers or theses or whatever it might be is actually that there are some types of of publication that you want to do that really kind of mix text and music perhaps fairly equally. Um, and so what it will often happen, particularly in a publishing house, is that they will do the music in their scoring program and then go and combine that in a page layout program um, with the text and so on that they've prepared externally. And the goal for Dorica, and I'm not sure we're there yet in the very first version, but the goal is absolutely that you should be able to do all of those page layout tasks directly inside Dorico and really perhaps only resort to using your page layout program for your fancy, you know, outer color covers and so on. Uh, and so in order to achieve that, we've, we've built a complete page layout system that involves, you know, music actually 
lives inside frames so just like text does in indesign your music actually flows through these frames you can also have text frames and you can have graphics frames and you can arrange them in any way you like including kind of overlapping and superimposed um and it also has a whole system of master pages which are effectively templates oh my god um, that's like a dream page layout yeah and and the cool thing about it is that even if you're not doing an application uh, if you're not doing a publication that requires one of these complicated text and music sort of mixed together type layouts what it does mean for the everyday musician who's producing just some parts that he's going to print out for his school band or whatever is that you get a completely consistent page layout every single time because you don't have to worry about things like titles being attached to bits in the music and then are they actually attached to the page and when you drag the staves down are they going to stay put are they going to move how do you handle headers and all this stuff all of that is just completely automatic in Dorico because it all comes from the master pages and you can define your own master pages you can you know it's really it's really pretty slick and i think again it's it's one of these areas where it's kind of a paradigm shift it's sort of putting the right level of abstraction on the concept i think that too often the programs that we're all used to using uh, in in our scoring workflows kind of take the bottom up approach where they say right well you've got to have this bit of text on the page in this position so let's think about that in the simplest way we can it, it attaches to this place in the bar or it's you know whatever it's kind of a bit of page furniture what we try to do with dorico across the whole board but especially in the page layout area we'll say well no well really this is about you know, it's basically about putting together a publication. And so in order to do that, what are the tools that people who put together publications actually need? And can we put them together in such a way that they're there? I mean, it's basically hidden behind one little switch in engrave mode, which is one of the five modes that Dorico has for the separating the workflow out. And you, you basically flick that switch and then suddenly you get handles on all your frames and you can choose what music appears in them. And you've, you've got this whole world of, of possibilities right there in front of you. But if you don't want to worry about any of that stuff, you can never switch that switch on and the program will still produce a really clean and consistent layout for you of a, of a standard looking score or a standard looking part. And you can just worry about all the bigger musical decisions about, well, you know, what page size is it going to be on? What staff size do I want to use? You know, how many systems to a page do I want in my parts? All these sorts of things. And everything else is just totally taken care of for you. And I think it's going to make a big difference to how quickly you can get um, a workable result out of the software without really putting a great deal of effort in. Well, if it's how you describe and how I'm imagining, um, I mean, let me give you a practical example. I mean, a couple of years ago, I, I tried to put together some some worksheets for my students. And basically what I wanted to do was put some exercises and then between each exercise is sort of a little bit of instruction and then maybe a fingering diagram or a picture inserted. And, you know, I... I have to say that in Sibelius, this was virtually impossible. And what I ended up having to do was export these uh, like graphic files to Illustrator and assemble everything there and then sort of. And then I never even really finished it. I got so overwhelmed. But are you saying that I could actually insert text sort of at will between staves and, and add pictures and right onto Dorico? Absolutely. And and in fact, you, you mentioned earlier on the fact that you can sort of have multiple movements and so on inside a Dorico file. And, and imagining you were doing your little sort of workbook of your clarinet examples for your students and so on. Each of those examples could be what we call a flow, which is our sort of word for an independent bit of music, whether it's an entire movement of a, of a symphony or it's four bars for a scale or anything in between, you know, sonata movement, whatever. And you can have as many of those flows as you like inside your project. And each flow can go in its own music frame or its 
own chain of music frames if it's if it's longer than you can fit in one frame and you can basically go into engrave mode and just start dragging out text frames which are which are green and dragging out music frames which are blue and dragging out graphics frames which are purple arrange them however you like double click to add a graphic to one of your purple frames copy and paste some text in from word or whatever to put into your into your text frame and you have full typographical control there including things like line spacing leading character stretching access to all of the different um, you know weights of the various font families you've got installed on your computer it's got a complete hierarchical style system so you've got paragraph styles and character styles just like you would have in indesign you know it's missing things like spell checking and hyphenation and so on at this point so there's there's lots more for us to do but you you know, basically, yeah, the, the idea is absolutely to be able to make those sorts of layouts. Um, effectively, again, one of the things you have to do with the other programs, is you kind of have to learn how they think about music and then learn how to kind of almost subvert that knowledge that you've gained in order to sort of almost trick the program into laying the music out that way. Well, that's Dorica, exactly much, what it is. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's, it's funny just to interrupt you there for one second. I, uh, I have a I remember when I was trying to do this a couple years ago, actually, I ordered the, the Sibelius manual and I, I was actually appalled because the chapter in there that talks about how to make worksheets advised to plan on a piece of paper, what you wanted it to look like first as how, as sort of as far as how many staves of music you would need, staves of music you would need. And then you had to like hide certain ones. And, and so you had to draw it out on a piece of paper and then try to sort of trick Sibelius into making it happen. And it still yep. never really happened. And it was really weird, but this sounds fantastic. Yeah, I, I hope it'll be, I hope it'll make a lot of that just much more direct, basically, you know, kind of, you, you're able to, what we try to do when we I talk about these sort of abstractions, where we basically try to put an extra layer between what you see on the page and you, and you, the user, so that there's actually a kind of a mediation where you can say, right, I know I need to have this bit of music in this box, this bit of music in this box, this bit of text over here. And by giving you this concept of frames, rather than just saying, well, hey, everything's just a stave on a page and you can't really change that we you actually by inserting that extra step in a funny kind of a way you make that job much much easier because you're giving the user even though they've now got one more thing to think about than they have in finale and sibelius which don't really have this concept of frames to the same degree later versions of sibelius do actually have little text frames that you can use in in sort of the same way but because there's no concept that a text frame is independent from the music in sibelius a text frame is still attached to the music then it, it isn't really you know, it's sort of a halfway house towards a page layout program, but not really all the way there. And so what we've tried to do with Dorico is just say, hey, look, this is a page layout problem. You need page layout tools to solve the page layout problem. You shouldn't have to kind of work around them with tools that are half designed for that purpose, but not. So instead we say, look, there's a proper way to approach this. Let's do it that way. And that's actually exactly the same reason why when you switch to play mode in Dorico, you don't see a weird kind of superimposition of playback data on top of notation. You just see an event display like you would see in Cubase that shows you a piano roll and shows you your notes and so on. Because mm. for those sorts of audio production workflows, that's the tool that works. So we, what we try to do is within the framework that Dorico gives us, build the tools that actually most directly allow the user to express the intention as clearly as possible to the software so that the software can respond appropriately and, and in the right way. Well, I think, again, you hit the nail on the head because I, what I, the problem I was having before, too, I mean, I remember taking my text box and I really couldn't remove it from the music staff. And also I, I couldn't find any sort of like what I would refer to as sort of word wrap features um, sure. to make this, the music and, and things wrap around the, that text. But this sounds like a really interesting 
insightful solution. So a minute ago, you mentioned engraving mode, and I realized that we actually forgot to go over the other four modes. Would you mind letting us uh, sort of some insight as to what those are? Sure. So the idea was to to basically separate out the different phases of working on the project into these different modes. And you can switch freely between them. So it's not like a rigid thing where you have to go from point A to point B to point C and so on, but rather to provide a means of having the tools that you need for the job at hand kind of directly in front of you and to give us the freedom to change the way that the project looks, for example, in the different modes. So from left to right is is kind of roughly in order of of working on a project from start to finish. You start with setup mode, which allows you to create your movements, your flows, to add layouts, which are the scores and parts that you actually would eventually print or, or export as graphics or whatever, and then players, which are analogs for human beings holding instruments, and they're the people who actually have the music to play inside the flows Um, and so you can kind of you know do some fairly elaborate setups there and i won't go into boring all your listens with the details but the the basic idea behind it is that rather than again as you have in other scoring programs just simply having a list of staves that are there on every page throughout the entire project by saying okay well we'll insert this abstraction where we say well I'm actually going to say that there's a human being, let's say his name is Sean, and he plays not only clarinet, <laughs> but he's also going to play you know, alto clarinet or bass clarinet, and he's going to double. And so that way I can give those two instruments to Sean, and then the program will know, okay, well, that's one that's one person. So I can automatically do the transitions between that instrument when he switches from from his regular clarinet to his alto clarinet or whatever, and, and, mm. it, and the user doesn't have to worry about that stuff. Oh, wow. So that's made I'm, much easier? Oh, way easier. I mean, it's, you don't have to do it. What about for your obscure doublings? Because like one thing that I found very difficult before, I actually just did a whole project where I, I also double on percussion, strangely enough. Are obscure doubles possible? Well, like going from unpitched to pitched percussion and this kind of stuff. Or or going from like clarinet in A to bongo (laughs) or marimba or whatever. Yeah. You could even, you could even go from say, you know, um, whistle to hop and it goes from a one-line percussion stave to a grand staff and it does all of that automatically for you oh, yeah wow. absolutely wow, wow. um so the, you know kind of having this idea of players really allows you to say and of course the other nice thing about that is let's say in the specific case of percussion you assign a bunch of percussion instruments to your percussion one and percussion two players but then it turns out that because of the way it's going to be arranged on the stage you're actually going to need a third percussionist and you're going to need to move some of the instruments that are currently being played by percussion one and percussion two onto the third player and you can simply just drag them from player to player and the parts will update and everything else. It's really, really pretty neat. Wow. And likewise, the fact that you've got these multiple flows that are these separate bits of music, if, let's say, in movement one, you don't need percussion three, you can just simply untick him or her from the list. And now it's not like that stave has to be hidden and maybe some edit you do later on cause it to reappear. It's just not there. Uh, and so it's it's that kind of again putting an extra layer of of abstraction in that actually reflects the the real practical concern that you have about how that music is going to work when it's performed by real human beings in the real world. So that's setup mode. The second mode is write mode, and in there you basically do all of the input and editing. You can put in all of the notations, and it's all very simple. There's keyboard access for everything. We've tried to make it such that you really can do absolutely everything you need to do with just the keyboard and even just the keyboard on your laptop you don't even need a numeric keypad or anything like that and of course you can use a midi keyboard to do step input and so on and everything uses um either you know these panels that are on the left and the right but also we have this system called popovers where you can type something like for example shift d for dynamics or shift b for bars or shift c for clefs and so on which are hopefully fairly easy to remember and then you kind of type in the name of the thing that you want so if you wanted to put in a forte dynamic you would just type shift d 
up comes a little popover. You press F. Don't have to worry about any special meta tools or keyboard shortcuts or whatever. You hit return and it automatically converts it into the appropriate bold italic forte marking. And you can, you know, to put in hairpins, for example, you just put in greater than or less than, which are the keys on your keyboard that look most like a hairpin. And then oh. you can extend them and retract them. And, you know, so it's designed to be logical and, and efficient to use. But the nice thing about write mode is that you can't really do any of the graphical layout stuff. Dorico is always doing all of the graphic layout stuff and the page formatting stuff for you. But you, uh, so you can hopefully work, you know, in a fairly distraction free way, not worrying about, hey, that went in the wrong place. I better go and fix that right now. It sort of encourages you to say, no, worry about the content. And then you can switch to engrave mode when you want to do that. And of course, you can work in galley view as well, which is scroll view or panorama view that just ignores pages altogether and just lays out each flow one after the other on its own separate kind of variable width page. And you can just work in a very free and flexible way. And all of the advantages we talked about earlier on, like being able to change meter or work in open meter and change, change all this stuff on the fly, all of that stuff is done inside write mode. When you're ready to worry about the graphical stuff, you switch to engrave mode, and that basically has a bunch of jobs to do. Um, really, only two of the four jobs that it needs to do are, are sort of enabled in the very first version of Dorico that you can buy today. Um, those two jobs are the page layout stuff we talked about with all the frames and so on and master pages. That's all there and working really great. And the second thing is individual graphical tweaks to items. And you can do that in two ways. We have very comprehensive system of properties which allow you to kind of this whole panel at the bottom of the screen that allows you to enter um, all sorts of you know different edits and things to again to again communicate your intention to the programs that does the right thing but you can also just start dragging stuff around in engrave mode as well if you want to make you know individual graphical tweaks and in the first update that's coming at the end of november you'll also then be able to do uh changing the staff spacing and we have a very neat plan for that which one of our programmers is working on um, right now and then the fourth thing is to then change all the note spacing and do those kind of engravery tweaks to make sure that everything fits together just so and we'll add that very soon as well then play mode is the fourth mode and, and in there you don't even see your notation as i say instead you see a view that looks quite like a project window in cubase or another sequencer you have each instrument um, shown as kind of a track and then you can expand that track and see the notes on the piano roll. Uh, and again, it's fairly basic right now in terms of what you can do in the very first version with editing it. But you can, for example, change the duration of a note in the piano roll. And that doesn't affect the notation, but it does affect what gets played back. And so we start to now have this, again, this additional abstraction that allows you to say, well, actually, in order to get the best out of my virtual instruments, I need to be able to change the way this music is going to sound. But I don't want to change what I would show to a real player who's going to sit down and play this from, from a music stand. So yeah. you kind of have this extra layer of, of indirection that allows you to kind of get the best out of your out of your VSTs without actually mucking up what you need to show to the players. And then the final mode is print mode, where you can basically, instead of seeing an editable version of the music, see a print preview, and it has support for batch printing and doing things like booklets and two-ups and spreads and all this stuff. And you can set up all of your settings so that you can simply select all of the layouts you want to print in one go, let's say your full score and a bunch of instrumental parts, and then you can print them all in a single operation um, or export them to PDF, whatever it might be. And, it, and it's very, very simple. And all of that stuff is then remembered for the next time you open that project in case you have to revise it or something. Um, and, and in that way, you know, between setup and write and engrave and play and print, we've tried to separate the workflow of the application into these different um, 
sort of phases of work. But you can switch between them completely freely at any time. They're all just a single button on the toolbar or a keyboard shortcut away. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it does require you again to sort of start to relax a little bit about doing job A and job B at the same time, although you can do that if you want to. But hopefully what it allows you to do instead is to focus on the task at hand to a to a greater degree than before. Um, and, you know, generally, I think the feedback we've had from people has been pretty positive to that kind of new approach. Well, yeah, I'm ex- extremely excited to try this. I, I have to say, though, I want to be mindful of the fact that we're coming up on an hour here. Do you have a little bit more time for a couple more questions? Sure. So one thing is, just for listeners, they won't know this, but we we, we had a bit of a mix-up last week and, uh, and uh, with the time zones here. But this actually led to an interesting thing. And Apple has released new laptops between when we were supposed to chat and, and today. And one noticeable exclusion was the escape key and something else that they've added was something called a touch bar. Is there any sort of idea to add this functionality to Dorico or is, is Dorico based around the escape key in such a way that Sibelius was? No, not really. I mean, you, you can use the escape key to stop note input and so on. But um, yeah, it's funny, really. Sibelius users kind of have this almost religious or superstitious um sort of thing about the escape key. I expect on people's computers who use uh, Sibelius a lot, the escape key wears out before any other <laughs> any other key on the even, keyboard. Even in the manual, it says like, press escape repeatedly. Until, 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 it's almost like playing the drum over there or something. <laughs> yeah, it's so almost comical. It doesn't rely on the escape key to the same extent, although, you know, it is still used for a, for a couple of stuff, <laughs> a couple of different functions. But yeah, I think the, the new touch bar is very interesting. Um, you know, I, we know a few people at, at Apple and uh, one of the people I know who's a sort of former colleague of mine indirectly through Sibelius who now works there was sort of super excited to say, hey, you need to watch this event tonight because I think you're really going to find this very, very interesting. And I, I think there is a lot of potential with the touch bar. Um, so it's definitely something that we're going to to evaluate. But, you know, it's it's tricky because one of the things that we try to do at Steinberg is to produce software that has kind of parity across the platforms that we support. And, you know, this this has its upsides and its downsides. It means that you can use Dorico on both Windows and Mac and you get pretty much the same experience, you know, notwithstanding the, the, the various operating system differences. But basically the software itself is as functional and has the same features on both platforms. And now that we have things like, you know, for example, just the day before Apple announced uh, the touch bar, Microsoft announced this thing, this surface dial that you can basically like clamp down on the screen of your surface and then use as a kind of a a funky way of, you know, sort of a very fancy radial menu that allows you to change stuff. And and those sorts of new input devices, whether they're on, on, on Windows machines or on Macs, they're really, really interesting. But they do pose a big problem to to developers like Steinberg who try to produce a consistent approach across across platforms. So we have to figure out what the what the best answer to how to address these interesting new technologies is going to be, um, because you know it would be it would be a real problem if, for example, we we used the Touch Bar on the MacBook Pro, by for example, to do something that you then couldn't do using another function on a regular keyboard that doesn't have the touch bar or on a windows machine that doesn't that simply cannot do it so so it's an interesting challenge it's obviously great to see these these new input devices and these new ways of interacting with with the hardware coming along and i think you know in a way it's it's kind of quite exciting that that we now have these two different desktop um, approaches that are that are kind of more and more divergent in terms of the ways that they're asking users to think about how they interact with them. But for ISVs like Steinberg, who are trying to kind of go across 
the divide between these two platforms, it's it's actually more of a headache <laughs> than anything else. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, it is funny because if you think about it, the things like the iPhone and the, the touch touch surface technology now is so integrated into life. But but this isn't even 10 years old. I mean, we didn't even know. No one was really using a proper touchscreen until 2007. Exactly. And yeah, it's, it's crazy, it's, isn't it? It's, it's bizarre to think about that, that we sort of got on without that before, but it was the way that it was. Yep, that's right. And it's, it's, it is amazing how, I mean, if you think about it, you know, we were talking about Finale, right, earlier on, running on a Mac SE2, you know, monochrome screen and all the rest of it. And that was only <laughs> 25 years ago. So, yeah, it's you know, really it's, interesting. Uh, it, yeah, it's come on enormously. And I can't even imagine even what we'll be doing in 10 years time, let alone 25 Absolutely. So there's a couple questions here um, just from listeners that I was not able to incorporate into my other larger set there. And then I had a couple quick thoughts about um, or quick questions about the, the pricing and educational licensing and stuff. So let's sure. first just start off with, um, is there any compatibility coming for Linux or is that a sort of a pipe dream for Linux users? Um, I think, to be honest, it's probably a pipe dream. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's it's always a tricky one. Over the years that I've been blogging about Dorico's development, that you know, where I periodically get questions from people saying, you know, oh, scoring software is the only thing that's keeping me on Windows or the only thing keeping me on Mac OS. Are you going to run on Linux? And you know, it just unfortunately, for the time being at least, there just isn't the commercial um, rationale to do it we can't we can't support it it's quite difficult you know building software that runs smoothly on two operating systems um that occupy you know like 90 x percent of the of the desktop computer market you know linux for all, all the well in the world is just not that widely used so to add a whole other platform um for for such a tiny chunk of of the market is unfortunately not really sustainable well, that seems that seems to make sense to me. I mean, ninety nine percent of users are probably on Mac or PC. Is that an appropriate number? I mean, I I didn't want to say ninety nine because I expect some somebody who's 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 much more up to date with exactly how how Linux is used in in the desktop world would would dispute it. But it's got to be in the high ninety percent of of people who are sort of in the market for commercial software like Dorico, ninety plus and a high plus towards a hundred would be using Windows and Mac. I'm sure. So this next question, um, the answer is actually freely available online. But the question is, um, does Dorico handle other file formats? And, and straight out of the box, I know that the answer is no. But I guess to sort of change up this question a little bit is, does this mean that in order to convert files to music XML format, which is what Dorico, Dorico does handle, does this mean that someone would still need to own a copy of the previous software in order to use their Dorico, their, their old files with Dorico? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, as you say, the 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 sort of the lingua franca between music applications these days, not just music notation applications, but actually, you know, generally music production applications as well. You know, I think Cubase and Logic, for example, both import and export music XML files now, um, although with, you know, varying degrees of peculiarity, some of which cause Dorico to kind of fall over at the moment because there are some possibly some little bugs in in their export and Dorico isn't maybe as resilient as it should be to to their to their 
stuff when it's importing them. But certainly if you're coming from Finale or Sibelius or even MuseScore, then exporting music XML is, is a totally, you know, easy thing to do um, from the application that you're coming from. I would say that my advice in general would be, you know, if you've got a project that's finished and that you've done all your wonderful work on, it looks great and it's ready to go, or in fact is already, you know, done, then I wouldn't feel any great compulsion to export as music XML and bring it into Dorico because Dorico works in such a different way to the other programs and music XML while it's a wonderful, wonderful technology, and as it, it is really the the de facto standard for moving musical data between these applications, it isn't a clean mapping um, onto the functional functionalities of any of these programs. And so, and because it's also, you know, one of its great strengths is also possibly a weakness in that it's quite loosely specified, which means that different applications can choose to encode the same musical situation in different ways. And the challenge that then brings any application that's trying to import that data is that you've kind of got to know what sort of dialect of, of music XML does the application that exported the file speak and how should you respond to the various situations that they encode in particular ways. So it, it's, a, it's always kind of an ongoing job really improving music XML import and export from different programs and enriching the musical data that, that you can bring across. But I would say that if you've got a project that you know you're at a fairly early stage with, you know, you're not sort of 99% of the way through part preparation and you're just about to first rehearsals on Monday and you're now thinking on Friday, hmm, should I stick this in Dorico? The answer should be no. You know, don't don't take a project that's like <laughs> 99% complete and switch to another program. That's not going to be a productive use of your time. But I think where Dorico can be helpful is if you've got an idea, you know, a project that's in, in progress that would benefit from some of the flexibility that Dorico has either in in editing and you know, actually developing that musical idea or indeed in terms of doing the layouts and doing the, uh, you know, doing all the page stuff and, and it's superior support for text and so on, then yeah, bring it across. But I think the important thing is not to have the expectation that a, a project you export from Finale or Sibelius to Music XML is going to open up and look exactly the same in Dorico because that just isn't really the way Music XML works. Is it possible to batch convert files? Like let's say I have a hundred Sibelius files that I would like to convert to XML. Is that something that Sure. Yeah, both Finale and Sibelius have have little plugins that you can access uh, that can do batch conversion in both directions. You can either like import a folder of, of music XML files into Sibelius and Finale and create native documents, or you can export a folder of native documents into music XML format. So yeah, both of those operations are possible. Well, I think it's understandable. And I think that it, you know, music XML provides a nice bridge for those who need it, but I, I don't think that it would be really be reasonable to expect that it should work exactly the same in everything. I mean, you can't take a iMovie project and edit it in Windows Movie Player. So why should you, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think of it. You know, all of these programs have their own strengths and weaknesses and their own proprietary formats and all the rest of it. And in a way, it's kind of a miracle that Music XML works as well as it does. And a lot of that is just down to Michael Good, the chap who invented Music XML, sort of being so dedicated and, and, and determined to make Music XML a thing. And his work for, you know, practically a decade, I guess, without really anybody um, really getting on board with it has now has now really paid off because I think there are now over 300 applications that support it either importing or exporting or both and you know without his single-minded determined uh, determination to make that happen I, I don't think it would have done so we all owe michael a great debt for for having invented music xml and we are now steinberg and make music which is where michael now works um, along with other industry um, companies are working together um, in a w3c working group to try and come up with a, a next generation sort of evolution of music xml that will improve some of the interoperability things that 
we've talked about. Um, and so I think the long term future of music XML is actually very bright. And hopefully um, the changes that we propose through that working group will will be adopted by the industry and, and they will have benefits for musicians who need to translate files between different programs, you know, well into the future. Yeah, no, I think it's a, a reasonable solution and definitely one that I'm glad exists and uh, doesn't exist in other applications, as I was just saying. So we should be fortunate to have that. <laughs> yep. Um, the last question here before we talk about pricing is, and I don't know how to bring this up without sort of opening up a can of worms, but I don't really know why it seems like opening up a can of worms is the, the Dorico licensing is dealt with with a dongle, but it seems to be a software dongle. Can you explain maybe I don't understand the concern regarding this, I guess, is my a few questions came in about this and I don't know what is concerning exactly about it. I mean, I have Adobe and I, I believe that's a software license. Um, how is this different? Yeah, so I think I think the um, the thing that is most concerning to people is that um, we've all become used with with Sibelius and Finale. Um, to being able to run the program on, say, two computers. If we have, say, a desktop machine in our studio and a laptop machine that we use on the road, with the same single-user license, we can run the program on both of those computers. And, you know, there's no kind of transferring. I mean, back in the early days of Sibelius, we're talking now, you know, a long time ago, back in version one, version two, you could only run the software on one machine at once and you had to kind of do this whole transfer saving mechanism back and forth. And every so often that would go wrong. And then the the danger is that you end up with, with a piece of software that you can't use at that point. And then you need to call tech support and get back up and running again. And you know, I think people feel with some justification that these kind of licensing schemes, in a sense, which are obviously there to protect both you know, the, the vendor's investment in the software to try and reduce the amount of piracy that goes on, but also to protect the investment of the customer who has bought into the software because, you know, we if piracy is too easy, if people can easily copy the software, then what that, you know, potentially does is, is weaken the company that's making it, which means that, you know, you might have given me your 300 bucks for the cross grade or whatever, but if 100 other people are able to steal it, then that's, you know, some of those people would have bought the software. Not all of them, of course. A lot of people just steal stuff for the sake of stealing it. And, you know, we can debate forever about whether or not piracy is really a problem in the software industry. But I think it's, it's you know, fairly widely accepted that piracy certainly does have an impact on, on sales, whether it's of movies or music or software. And so, you know, by by having a system that makes it harder to to copy the software, it does actually protect the customer's investment in the software as well, because it means that more people will buy the software, which means that the company is hopefully going to be around longer to support that software and continue developing it. And I think particularly in the field of music software, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for there to be um, hardware license keys, you know, Pro Tools and so on still uses an iLock. Um, Vienna v Vienna Symphonic Library uses the uses the same e-license key that Cubase uses and so on. And so, you know, it's part of this. It's part of the the cost of doing business, as it were, in in this sort of niche world of music software. Um, but I think that with Sibelius and Finale, because you can basically register the software or activate the software on two machines, that kind of eliminates a lot of that concern that people have. And the way that Steinberg's soft e-licensor works, um, and of course Steinberg is the manufacturer of this e-licensor technology as well, which as I say is used not only by our own products, but also by some other third-party companies, most notably by VSL, who use it for all of their sample libraries and instruments as well, um, is that 
you know, if you're using the software version, you can only activate on a single computer. So if you want to use the software on your laptop and on your desktop, then you can't really do that with the software e-licensor as things stand. What you actually have to do is transfer the license from your soft e-licensor, which is kind of like, if you like, in a dongle that, like you said, is in software living on that one computer onto a physical dongle, onto a USB e-licensor. Then you can plug that USB e-licensor into whichever machine you want to run Dorico on at that time, you know. Obviously, you can only run it on one at a time because you've only got one dongle to plug into the to plug into that computer. But you can then move it freely whenever you like from one computer to another. And I think that you know the concern there is well, I don't have to do that with my other scoring software, so why should I have to do it with Dorico? And you know the answer is that's the way that Steinberg's licensing system works today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know all of Steinberg's products, whether it's WaveLab, whether it's Cubase, whether it's Nuendo. In fact, all of those, apart from the the very um, sort of low low cost versions, all of them require the USB licensor. So Dorico is actually a first for Steinberg in that it's a professional level tool that doesn't require a USB licensor at all. You can run it on the machine that you buy it on and you download it and activate it on without ever plugging in a dongle at all, which means that if you only have one computer and it's a laptop or something, you don't have to worry about a USB licensor um, that you know could potentially get broken or lost and so on. But I think the important thing to remember is that Steinberg has been using this technology for a very long time and it's very reliable and it works really well and steinberg not only has um you know self-service tools that you can use on on our website to get yourself back up and running if you should encounter a problem with your softy license for example let's say you know let's say disaster strikes and your you know your laptop hard drive crashes and because the software was installed via a software e-license, so you've now got no license for Dorico. Well, if you register your license with your My Steinberg account, which is like a little free account that you can have on the Steinberg website that you can register your products to, you can simply install Dorico again on your on your replacement machine and you can go on there and you can any time of the day or night you can get a new activation code as long as you've got a registered license for the software. And so you'll be you'll be up and running just as soon as you've got the software installed again. And likewise, if you're using a USB e-licensor, um, Steinberg has uh, a special um, service called Zero Downtime, where you can actually have a spare USB licensor to hand, or you can go and buy one from your local music shop, and you can get temporary licenses for all of your products back onto that USB licensor right then and there on the website, so that just literally as soon as you've got another USB license to plug in, you can be back up and running, and then you can you then have 30 days to resolve the situation permanently with with our support staff who are who are very used to dealing with these problems as they come up, although they come up very rarely in the scheme of things in terms of how many tens or hundreds of thousands of customers that, that are using Steinberg solutions every day. So I would hope that you know yes, it is a bit of a different approach than the other scoring programs. And I understand that people really want the flexibility of, of running the, the software on two computers um, without the need for a, for a USB e-licensor. But the technology that we have today, that's the way it works. And I think that you know Steinberg is is always looking at ways to both protect our own business interests and our own investment in our products so that we can carry on building great products not just today but also into the future but also looking at ways that we can that we can make our customers lives better so i wouldn't say that you know we're hoping that dorico is going to have a very long and successful uh, life as a product in steinberg's product family and i think that you know we will be looking um, not only for dorico but also across all of our products continually at, at new ways of, of of licensing the software in, in a way that is as i say meets this goal of protecting our investment in the software but also protecting our customers investment in the software as well so i think you know watch this space 
it's it really isn't a big deal right now it works great there are lots of solutions to any problems that you might come up with our support staff are excellent in the unlikely event that you need to get in touch with us and we will be looking at how how we can continue to improve and evolve our licensing technologies you know for the foreseeable future yeah i mean i have to say for me i i can't really see it being that big of a problem but you know nowadays for example computers aren't even really coming with uh usb ports anymore for example sure. and uh, absolutely yeah, like those new MacBook Pros last week, they've all got those little USB, well, they're actually technically Thunderbolt 3 ports, aren't they? But they yeah. they can double up as, as USB-C uh, ports, I think, although I'm, I'm not very up on the details. But they can, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it, it is it is a, an increasing an increasing issue. And I think that, you know, we're not we're not blind to that. We're not blind to the fact that computer hardware is changing. And so we we want to, you know, but the, the important thing is that we we want to have um, a series of solutions that build on what we already have and that meet meet on our customers needs and also, you know, meet our meet our business needs as well, because it's in everybody's interest that that Steinberg products are around, you know, for the foreseeable future to help people create their create their musical and, and, and sound projects. And so that's really what it's about. Yeah, no, I don't see a reason to dwell on it anymore. I, I see that the, the people who really, really need to do this, um, let's say it's for business use, could they not just purchase a second license or, or? Of course, that's absolutely. And in fact, if you, if, for example, you have both Finale and Sibelius, then you could actually, you know, you could buy a cross grade for each of those licenses if you wanted to. Yeah, I guess like if it gets to the level where you're needing it for, you know, professional scoring applications, maybe that is a, a solution. Although, you know, it's not a, a few hundred dollars isn't just a drop in a hat. Um, but th Definitely that leads not. me to my next question, actually, which is the pricing. Where, where can we buy Dorico? Where can, what's the pricing like and how, where can we get it? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dorico can be bought uh, right now from uh, from not only for, directly from the Steinberg online shop, where you can buy it either, uh, depending on where you are in the world, you can you can buy it as a download anywhere in the world. And if you're in one of the countries where where we sort of ship directly to end users, then you could also buy the boxed version. There's really no difference between the boxed version and the download version, except that the boxed version comes with some DVDs in the box. And that it comes with a USB e licensor. So if you if you know that you are going to need to transfer Dorico from one machine to another, then um, actually buying the boxed version would be a good idea because although you don't have to use the USB e licensor, then you know you'll have it somewhere stashed away in a drawer or in a box somewhere so that when you do actually want to start transferring it, you've got the USB e licensor on hand to reflect the fact that the download version doesn't contain the USB e licensor and that you might need to buy that as a later date. The download version is a little bit cheaper than the boxed version if you buy it directly from us or from one of our resellers who can sell um, downloads. Um, and that's so that hopefully you're not too out of pocket if you then choose later on to buy the USB e licensor. It's kind of trying to be fair to everybody who's, who's buying the software. So you you can buy it, as I say, directly from us or from any of your any of our resellers. Um, so you know, there's a decent chance that if you know of a music shop that sells Cubase or any of our other products, they will also carry Dorico, or they certainly can if they if they don't already. Um, and uh, the pricing is is basically on on a par with with our other professional tools. So the list price for for Dorico um, as a as a download is uh, five five nine US dollars, and it's five seven nine uh, for the boxed version. The cross grade is basically 
um, half that price. It's it's effectively uh, 299 or 279 if you buy the download, um, and the educational price is about 60% of the of the list price. That's 349 if you buy the boxed version, and 329 if you buy the download version. And if you um, if you actually are lucky enough to qualify for educational pricing under Steinberg's rules, um, then regardless of whether you currently hold an academic license for either Sibelius or Finale or Notion, which are the products that are eligible for our cross-grade pricing, we actually have a special educational cross-grade price, which I think is 199 or 179 for the download. Um, so it, it's hopefully not too expensive to get on board with Dorico. And the if you buy Dorico now in its sort of early, early incarnation, then um, then we are saying that all of the updates that we do over the next, you know, several months, you know, well into next year, all of those will be free to existing users. And they will not only fix bugs, but they'll also start to add um, features that we've that we've talked about and that people, you know, are, are waiting for things like chord symbols and so on. We, we absolutely plan to include those in updates. We can't give a 100% cast iron guarantee that they will be because the, the nature of software development and, and our commitment to trying and doing things properly and making sure that we only release features when they're really um, able to, to, to stand up to what musicians actually need of them is such that, you know, until we've actually got that feature in the bag, it's best for us not to promise that it's going to be there. But that's absolutely the plan. And all of those updates will be free um, for the for the next, you know, several months. And then eventually we will, when we feel like we've uh, we've kind of delivered on the promise of what Dorico 1. whatever should be, then we'll start thinking about a Dorico version 2, you know, sometime in the future. But Steinberg is definitely committed to uh, to Dorico for the long term and to, you know, hopefully building a relationship with some new customers because a lot of people who've been buying Dorico already are not existing Steinberg customers. So it's it's very interesting for us as a company to to start to to have a dialogue and have a relationship with with a new kind of musician that maybe hasn't been used to using some of our other solutions already. So it's it's an exciting time. So I hear there's a trial version coming out, which is fantastic. Is there also a subscription planned or no? Uh, certainly not planned. No, I mean we. I, I would again sort of never want to rule anything out categorically forever. But we mm-hmm. we did ask our customers um, a little while ago before Dorico came out. But certainly all of our existing Cubase customers who number you know in the probably the hundreds of thousands by now what they think about the idea of subscription pricing. And you know the feedback that we got from from them was that they would prefer not to to follow subscription pricing. So so Steinberg follows the kind of the fairly traditional model whereby you know you buy your license for the current version maintenance releases in that in that particular version series are included um, and maintenance releases will typically stop um, either just before or just after the next version that would be a paid upgrade comes out typically Steinberg products move on a kind of 0.0.5 sort of product life cycle so you know Cubase is currently a version 8.5 which came out at the end of last year um, Cubase 9.0 will be the next one um, uh, to be announced you know when it's when it's ready and so on um, and so if you're on say Cubase 8.5 then upgrading to Cubase 9 is slightly cheaper than if you're on say Cubase 8.0 or 7.5 or something but there's no obligation to buy a particular upgrade. You know, you can upgrade when when you feel that the features that we've added since you last upgraded are appropriate for you to to spend the money. Uh, and it's you know it's very very straightforward. Um, and although we don't you know say oh well everything's going to be released on on this sort of time scale, you know 
long-standing Steinberg customers kind of have understand what the rhythm of the business is like and, and when things are likely to come out, roughly speaking. So, so I think people sort of understand wh- where we're coming from and it, and it makes it very straightforward to decide whether or not you want to, to sort of hop on board with a new version. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent way to go about it. I mean, I know that subscriptions are actually not that popular with users, but strangely enough, they, they sometimes let people try products for cheaper. So they go ahead and and do that. So I think that, you know, the way it's working here with the trial version with the full upgrade price, that's going to be just just perfect. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Daniel. I'm really, really happy to have had the chance to talk about uh, this new Dorico software with you. And I thank you so much for taking the time to um, to chat with me today. Of course, I'm going to post all the links to, um, to Dorico and a couple of things we spoke about in the show notes. And uh, before we go, is there anywhere that people should look for you online or is there any last things you'd like to say to the audience? Um, I'm certainly, well, thank you for having me. First of all, it was, it was great. I had a great time chatting with you about, about Dorico and everything else. So thank you very much. And yeah, if people want to get hold of me, I'm pretty easy to find online. If uh, probably the easiest way to get hold of me is on Twitter where I'm at D Spreadbury. Um, and I welcome any and all communication about Dorico or indeed anything. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Daniel. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you'd like the chance to win items mentioned on the show, please be sure to head to www.clarinet.com and subscribe with your email address to our mailing list. You'll also receive free content updates, coupons, and more directly to your inbox. If you're enjoying the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can purchase your new and neat clarinet items at the Clarinet online store at clarinet.com store. Or you can become a backer on Patreon at clarinet.com Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Today's episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Diderio Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.